when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. I found myself crying in the bottom of the shower a few times and making announcements to my children who might have been traveling the car with me that I was going to quit the company because I couldn't go on. One of those times, my daughter, Amy, who's 15 now, turned around, she grabbed my arm while I was driving and she said, you cannot quit this company. I want to work in it, mum. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome. Boy, we have a treat in store for you today with a person whom we reckon is one of the best storytellers we've had on the show. Yeah, I really agree. Now, we're talking about Australian entrepreneur Michaela Jade. Michaela, otherwise known as Mick, founded InDigital, a company developing innovative new ways to digitize and translate knowledge and culture from remote and ancient communities. Mick, a proud Indigenous woman, is a UN Permanent Forum Indigenous Issues Delegate, and she's a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Augmented and Virtual Reality. Wow. As well as being recognized as a top 100 innovator in Australia. Not only that, Mick has a background in environmental biology and recently completed a Master's of Applied Cybernetics. Google it if you're curious. Yeah, I had to. (laughs) In this episode, you'll learn how Mick reacted when, as a young adult, she learned she had Indigenous ancestors. How she came up with the idea of using augmented reality to share cultural stories in national parks where she worked how it was hard to get people to really help her progress her augmented reality ideas, what happened when Mick reached rock bottom, and one technology Mick thinks we all need to read up on. So without further ado, we think you'll just love this conversation. So get comfortable and enjoy this episode with the compelling and resilient storyteller, Mick Jade. Mick Jade, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you on the show. I don't know if you know this, but we were actually meant to be interviewing you as part of the TEDx Sydney event pre-COVID, and then COVID happened and it all all fell apart. Did you know that? I didn't know that, Claire. <laughs> I didn't know. There you go. So it's been like 18 months where we've we've really wanted to have a conversation with you, and here we are, which is really exciting. All good things come to those who wait, was something my mum and dad used to say. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mick, how we like to start our podcast, just so our listeners can ground who you are, is to ask you 
a question, which is, if you were at a dinner party and you were meeting people for the first time, how would you describe what you do today? Well, as a Macabre woman, I'd probably describe who I am and the people I come from first. So I'm a Macabre woman from the Darug-speaking nations of Sydney. And I started a company called InDigital, which teaches frontier technologies like augmented and mixed reality to all people through a cultural lens. Amazing. I bet you get jaws kind of dropping at that point, don't you? Yes, sometimes. Well, it depends if they're a gamer or not. Um, If they're gamers, they really know about Pokemon Go and the spatial web. So then we end up going into a technical discussion. But if people uh, don't really play Pokemon Go or haven't really been in augmented or mixed reality or virtual reality even, um, we can then go and have a conversation about how this is going to change the world. Yay. Well, that's the conversation we're going to have in a little bit. (laughs) But before we do, we really want to learn more about you and, you know, where you're from and your upbringing, because we think it's really important and really helps people understand, you know, your journey and why you've come to where you are today. And so, Mick, when you go back to your childhood, where did you grow up to start with? I grew up in Wurrunga, but on the Hornsby side, right next to a large tract of bushland in the Sydney Basin. And so for our listeners overseas, that is about an hour, hour and a half north of Sydney? Well, at the time when I grew up, it was kind of the edges of Sydney. We lived in an area that had lots and lots of national park all around it and Crown Reserve. So there was lots and lots of natural areas. I mean, it's an absolutely stunning area, isn't it? Yeah, it's so beautiful. That's still my home and the place that I feel most myself at. Amazing. And what was your childhood like? I had an amazing childhood. My parents, Mike and Sue, uh, my dad was a builder and mum raised us while dad was doing lots of construction around Sydney and we Grew up in this cul-de-sac where we had free reign of being able to use our BMX to create jumps out of gutters. We didn't have formed gutters in the street where we lived, so we spent a lot of time creating jumps and BMX tracks and going off into the bushes as well and discovering what you can do with stringy bark and paper bark and making baskets and painting our bodies in grounded sandstone of multitudes of colours So it was a pretty incredible childhood. The only rules we had really that we had to be back by the time the streetlights were on. And what was the young Mick like or Michaela? I was very shy, which people don't really believe me now because I do a lot of speaking and socialising, but I was a very shy kid and I was very obsessed with nature. So just always wanting to know how nature worked and really curious about the animals that were in nature. And as I grew up into a teenager, I took on environmental championing for the animals when it came to development. I used to turn up to council meetings when I was 16 years old um, to try and protect the green and golden bell frog from developments that were happening in our local community. And yeah, just really concerned about the impact that people were having on the environment as I could witness it as, you know, a young child and into my teens. Yeah, wow. And in in its time, I mean, this is presumably 20 plus years ago, mm-hmm. you were kind of ahead of your time, really, because that wasn't such a hot thing as it is today. Oh, it really wasn't. I remember um, when I declared to my family that I wanted to become a park ranger. <laughs> 
A, they weren't surprised by that, but a lot of my family and friends are saying, well, that's, you know, really frivolous because there'll be no jobs in environment. Like it's a career that's going to not allow you to have a career in a way. So there wasn't a lot of support to go and do an environmental biology degree, but I did it anyway because I felt really connected to country in ways I couldn't understand. And I thought, I'm just really good at this being in the bush and understanding environments. And I really want to hone my career around that. And you say you sort of didn't really understand that connection to country because when you were growing up, did you or your family uh, know about or identify as Indigenous? We didn't identify and there are lots of reasons for that, which I'm happy to go into. Uh, We did know a little bit about having some Aboriginal heritage, but it was kept a secret in the family, even family gatherings. It was never really raised, even though when I reflect back now going to my great-grandfather's place, like literally being surrounded by Aboriginal people everywhere. It was never really talked about. So I grew up having an inkling but not really understanding what that connection was or would become in my life. Ah, And when did you sort of really realize the connection and kind of embrace that? Yeah, so as a kid I was always asked if I came from somewhere else. People would say to me in school, oh, you look different. What island do you come from? Or are your family from the Pacific? Or there was just lots of questions like that growing up, which I didn't know how to answer. And then when I was in my 20s, my very early 20s, I was able to have a career in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park as a marine park ranger. And as part of my first duties, I was asked by the district manager to hold this process, which was incredibly challenging. It was working with the Naro community and five other traditional communities along the Great Barrier Reef Coast to discuss a moratorium on the take of dugong and turtle out of the marine park. And that was a confronting job for anyone to do, but he said that I needed to do that and that the community were asking for me to be the person that came to their houses and sat around their kitchen tables and talked about this cultural business, which is so heavy. So when I went to do those negotiations, I'd turn up trying to be all professional as a 20-year-old in my Marine Parks uniform and sit around these women's tables and you know try and talk about the moratorium, but they didn't really want to talk about that with me. They wanted to talk about my family heritage and they asked me a lot about where I came from and who my tribe was and Yeah, they really wanted to kind of unpack that with me. So I also found that quite confronting because I'd never been spoken to about our family history. And one thing they used to say to me was, don't worry, it'll find you and you'll you'll find your way. So I stayed in the Whitsundays for eight years and had an amazing friend in Wayne Butterworth who helped me understand Naro culture and the landscape I was working in and the community and something... um, really confronting happened. Wayne was tragically killed in an accident and I I really struggled with Wayne passing away and I just had my first child when that happened. Um, she was only a few weeks old and decided that I, you know, we needed to move from the Sundays and go and have a career somewhere else. It was just, it was super traumatic and an opportunity had come up for um, my husband at the time to go and work on the other side of the country. So we decided to pack our lives up and move over to Ningaloo. 
where we were the on-park rangers for Cape Range National Park. So 55,000 hectares of remoteness. Our next door neighbours were 20 kilometres away and the house was mud brick and, you know, the electricity was by a wind turbine. Oh, my goodness. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful part of the world, isn't it? Yeah, it's very beautiful. But what's confronting when you arrive there is I'd been living in the rainforest for eight years. So we arrived at this place and I was like, oh, my God, it's the desert. There's no trees that are above two metres tall. (laughs) And I'm a first-time mum with a brand-new baby and I don't know anyone and, oh, my God, what have we done? Gosh. But, yeah, it was was such an incredible time living at Ningaloo and eventually Eventually, I was employed by the park service over there to do visitor management um, across the Pilbara. So I got to travel and work with communities in joint park councils on cultural tourism products that they were developing for the region. And that was such an amazing time. But what did happen was the Yinigadera and other community members asked me the same questions about my heritage. So I realised that I would need to do something about this and tried to speak to my family about it and they just didn't want to talk about it. What was the big block for your family? Well, my mum didn't want to talk about it and, you know, I understand why now. At the time I was really frustrated and kind of wondering why she didn't want to talk about it. But, you know, this was 14 years ago now and as I've had conversations with elders and other community members in my own clan as well as across Australia, you know, the time that mum grew up was in the 50s and it was just rough if you had Aboriginal heritage. And we we eventually uncovered what happened to our family. So I descend from one of the first of the five stolen generation that of children that were taken to the Blacktown Natives Institute. So the interactions of my family with the government started early in the colony. And that child absconded from the Blacktown Natives Institute, her name was Fanny, and she went ahead and had this child, Lucy, who ended up being quite a staunch Indigenous advocate for rights way back in the 1800s. And she, Gosh. yeah, she's an amazing woman. She petitioned the Aborigine Protection Board for rights to a boat because her and her, her then husband were exceptional farmers, which is no surprise because Darug means people of the yam um, and we were yam farmers in the Sydney Basin. She could see the need for the food to travel down the Georges River and down into the colony. So she got a petition together and lodged it with the Aborigines Protection Board. Now she was denied the boat so she never was able to get the boat to transport this incredible produce but she left a legacy in writing of her plight which was uncovered by a family member back in the early 2000s. Then all the other stories started coming out about the family. Like Lucy, you know, she had nine children. We had Indigenous servicemen in our family in the First World War who came back from the war with horrendous injuries and were never allowed to have hospice care because of their Aboriginality and they were never, in fact, paid for their service in the First World War. And Marion Lean Smith is in our family, so I descend from the Lean family, and she's recorded as the only Indigenous female who served in the First World War, so she was on the hospital trains. That happened in the First World War again. My great-grandfather was an Indigenous serviceman in the Second World War, and because there were no benefits and no rights in identifying as Indigenous people, 
my great-grandfather made the determination not to identify anymore. And so my grandfather grew up and his siblings grew up not identifying. And as as a result, my mum, born in 1954, was raised not to identify as a first person in this country as well. So you can imagine how difficult that is to have multiple generations affected by racism and the Australian policies to then have your child in the 80s and 90s grow up and then in the late 90s go, who am I, and try and unpack all that. Yeah, gosh, that must have been incredibly confronting for your family as well as for you. It really was. And, yeah, when you find out that you're someone else and your roots belong in this country and that validates why I felt so connected to the country I was growing up on because it was my country, yeah, there's a lot of rec- reconciling with that I can imagine and what impact did it have on you to finally know this story and sort of put all the bits together that help you understand who you were yeah I've had a breakdown actually so I ended up leaving my husband I tried to take my life when I was 29 I you know had severe severe depression Uh, I had to go through a big amount of psychological work and counselling and it was during those sessions actually that mum drove down from Sydney to take me because when you've got a mental health problem like that, the last person you want to go and see is your psychologist. So she'd drive 360 kilometres down to Canberra and take me to the sessions and it was in those sessions that we unpacked a lot of our family hurt and a lot of our family history and a lot of our um, relationships and it was in those moments that mum became my strongest ally and we enjoy a really beautiful relationship now. What an incredible gift in the end. It really was and when I was coming out the other side of this and in those sessions and the reflection that you do going through that kind of journey, I made a promise to myself and to my community that I would not be angry about what happened to my family and I would not be angry about the trauma and I would re-channel that into something positive and something that I could pass on to my girls where they would be proud of who they are, they would know who they are and where they come from and that they would have connections to our extended Derek family across Sydney. So for the last 13 to 14 years I've really worked on that and that's really how in digital came about which is such a great segue and such a great story tell us about how you came up with the idea for in digital in digital started life as most startups as a side hustle so i went to an event in Canberra University in 2012 and saw augmented reality for the first time. The tech was a bit basic back then, but I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So I was able to put an an iPad over a photo of a doctor and a video of a doctor hovered one centimetre above the paper. And I thought, this is pure magic. (laughs) And I wanted to know everything I could know about this technology. And I went home and had a shower and this concept sort of came into my mind in the shower about what if we could deploy this technology in our cultural places where you could put your phone over a cultural place and our elders could appear in holographic format and tell you the right story at the right time 
for the right reasons and also build a business model around this that would help our mobs still be able to earn an income on country while also freeing them up from having to, in inverted commas, entertain tourists. So that was the bold idea that came to my mind and it was really driven by me having to be one of those park employees that creates those horrendous signs that we put on country all over the place in national parks where a lot of the story anchors around simply the age of the site and not necessarily the storying from the community and not necessarily teaching you about what you're supposed to know by being there. Yeah, I love the phrase that you used about, you know, telling the right story in the right way at the right time. So there you are, you've had this idea in the shower. Now, I'm sure that the whole Park Rangers organization, there are probably some quite conservative elements to it for good reasons and to make sure to protect the land. How did you go sort of trying to get some traction with this idea? Terribly. (laughs) (laughs) I went terribly in in achieving that vision. Um, I was an entrepreneur in parks. I had little experience in trying to sell an idea because, you know, ideas are great in parks, but you then have to go through a cycle of getting the funding for them and doing a pilot. And yes, it's a very kind of risk averse environment to raise new ideas like augmented reality. So I ended up not doing it in my parks role. I ended up building it on the side and working with five senior traditional artists in Kakadu who really embraced the concept and wanted to try it out for themselves and through their own cultural expressions. So we partnered up on a project which was the first version of In Digital Storytelling and we worked out how do you tell a compelling cultural story using this new technology in a landscape that has no internet and be able to hold true to those stories in language while having other people understand the cultural expression that they're experiencing through their own mobile devices. Yeah, and you really made me stop and think too because you, when you said, you know, in environments where there is no internet, mm. and, you know, we just all take that for granted. So I was going, yeah, crikey, so many different elements. And what's fascinating though and I'm curious about is, you had no technology background or experience of any sort of formal sense anyway by this stage as far as I understand it. So how did you get this off the ground? Yeah, so I saw augmented reality in 2012, so I knew that it existed. I certainly didn't know how to build it, so I became a really great stalker on LinkedIn and Google and wanted to know who in the world makes this technology And I put two tenders out because I got a very small grant. It was like $25,000 to do some R&D around this, which I can tell you if you are working in a cutting-edge technology and you get one one one-hundredth of the money you need, it's worse than not having money (laughs) to do it at all. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So I put this tender out twice to the Australian development community asking for anyone who knew anything about this technology to please work with me to get this idea off the ground and No one responded. I then started calling people and everyone laughed saying that I didn't have enough money and there was a lot of racism starting to creep in as well. Comments like, that's great, Michaela, but Indigenous people don't use technology, so who's this product for? Which is highly offensive and just made me really angry. So one night I was crying on my bed because I thought, wow, I've got this tiny amount of money. I can't spend it because no one wants to help me. And then I just remembered my ancestor, Lucy Lane, and what she went through and what 
my ancestors had gone through for me to stand here with this opportunity and I got my shit together and started Googling people internationally. So I just knew that it wasn't going to get off the ground with the support of Australian developers and I needed to find developers in other countries to help me. It's so sad in retrospect, isn't it? It's gut-wrenching. I hate that story because, you know, I really want to stand here as someone who's proud of my country and say that, yeah, people chipped in and wanted to help, but no one did. (laughs) So that is a sad part of the story, but it has a silver lining. So (laughs) I did find Jason Higgins who responded to my phone call and he said he didn't care about the amount of money that I had. Um, He just thought the concept was really cool. He turned out to be a guy that has been working in augmented reality for 20 years before I called him. He was a true. 20 years. Yeah. He's a true pioneer. His company Harmony AR is in the UK. He He works out of a barn in Biggleswade and he taught me what he called the dark arts of augmented reality production overnight. Um, So I would do my ranger job in the day, jump on Skype at nighttime about 11 o'clock and we'd go through till one or two in the morning of him teaching me over Skype how to do things like how to prepare an object for image recognition, how to work with the technology to code image recognition, what parts of the story should we consider expressing in augmented reality and what parts are not great for using this medium. So I learned a hell of a lot from him over two years. God, that's so generous and amazing. It's probably a good time to say for listeners, you know, how would you very briefly define augmented reality in case people are not quite sure? Okay, well, most people, if they've used a Snapchat filter or they've played Pokemon Go or any of those kind of games, they've used augmented reality. And really what it is is creating digital layers that are overlaid on the real world. There's a few kinds of realities. So there's virtual reality. That's the one where you put the headset on and you can't see the real world. So you then become immersed in a fully digital world. And then there's augmented reality, which most people can experience through their phones or iPads, where you hold your phone up to a object or a place or a sign and the digital layer appears and helps you understand the context of that place where you might be standing or the object that you're looking at. And then there's mixed reality, which is that kind of content, but it is spatially aware and you can interact with it using hand gestures and voice commands. Awesome. That's a a great summary. What were the biggest challenges to then take this learning and this concept and then make it real? Yeah, finances <laughs> was probably the biggest challenge. So as an Indigenous woman working in frontier technologies in a remote locality, which is often called a frontier itself, I was not high on the list of people that you would invest in from the investment community. I ended up having to take out an enormous business loan Um, Yeah, which I ended up paying off over the next three years with my park ranger salary. Yeah, it was very difficult financially. And I created my first minimum viable product in order to show people what we were talking about. Because speaking about augmented reality is kind of like trying to explain colours to people that can't see. Yeah. Yeah, It's very difficult. So when we had our first minimum viable product, it was the Kakadu series. So there was five really beautiful cultural expressions which were triggered by these beautiful artworks that we put on postcards on very high quality paper. Uh, And they ended up circulating around the world. And someone at the United Nations in New York received one of these postcards and used the application and was completely 
compelled by the content and we were invited over to the United Nations to go for World Indigenous Peoples Day to showcase this technology and its promise and, you know, opportunity for First Peoples to share our stories, language, knowledge and law. And it became very popular. I had lots of people calling me from around the world, asking me to make their content for them and almost had another breakdown because it was so costly to make those five experiences. It was $10,000 just to code 90 seconds of content for this application. Yeah. It was kind of like Pandora's box. I opened it and then was completely unable (laughs) to fund the development of any further content and certainly the communities I was working with couldn't afford to pay for that kind of content because let's face it we've got an 80,000 year old way of sharing stories that works quite well without having to pay that kind of money to create content so that was really difficult. How did you get yourself through it? I have an amazingly supportive partner who who basically supported our family on a single income practically because all my park ranger salary was going to repay this business loan debt. So, you know, I'm really grateful to Pete for him financially supporting us and also doing, you know, a lot of the lion's share of raising kids and doing all the things while I was trying to break through with this technology and make it work for everybody. I was lucky to have, you know, my community and just incredible people around me to, to keep me motivated You must have, though, gone through stages where you just thought, oh, my God, I should just give this up. How did you mentally get through it? I didn't three times. (laughs) So, you know, having we've spoken about having a mental health challenge. Yeah. In the moments where I couldn't see how I was going to pay the bank loan, you know, there's weeks where that was really difficult. There was moments where people wanted to work with me, but I knew I didn't have the capacity to deliver on what they wanted by myself. You know, I found myself crying in the bottom of the shower a few times and making announcements to my children who might have been traveling in the car with me that I was going to quit the company because I couldn't go on. (laughs) One of those times, my daughter, Amy, who's 15 now, turned around, she grabbed my arm while I was driving and she said, you cannot quit this company. I want to work in it, mum. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) The time I was very, very serious about quitting was back in 2018 when I was invited to speak at a symposium at the Powerhouse Museum by a friend who's a lovely dear uncle. And I said, yes, uncle, I'll come and do it. And I just didn't want to do it that day. I woke up and realised what I'd committed to, which was six hours of road travel and bringing kids along to an adult science symposium. But I did go um, and I'm so glad that I did because not only was the science symposium really awesome, I got to meet Tianti from Microsoft who was the head of philanthropies. And she came up to me after I spoke and we had a conversation about, you know, my vision and what I wanted to do. And she asked if there was any way that Microsoft could help. So I grabbed that opportunity with both hands and said, yes, I want to see that hollow lens that I know exists because I'd never put it on my head. And yeah, um, yeah, she took me to the Microsoft office and I got to meet with um, the Asia Pacific lead for HoloLens. And I showed him the app that we'd done through the artworks. And he told me if I could get that content in the HoloLens in the next three weeks, they'd put me on stage at their big Microsoft convention in Sydney. (laughs) 
Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I think they, they have to be some of the best dream words ever. How can Microsoft help you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, be still my beating heart. Where do I begin? <laughs> yes. It was one of those, like, really amazing points in my life where I, I thought I could give this up because being a park ranger is really comfortable and easy and secure or I could take this risk and get to know TNG and, and the company and, you know, maybe change the world. So I took that opportunity and we've been fantastic partners with Microsoft Australia um, for the last four years now. They've been instrumental in helping me reshape the design of how we create content. So I, you know, was talking about all these challenges that I was facing with them, like it costs us $10,000 to do 90 seconds and communities can't pay for that. And there are lots of technical, you know, challenges with shoehorning all these amazing stories and knowledge and language into an app which I felt was a very insecure way to store cultural knowledge so they worked with me and you know showed me all these new technologies like artificial intelligence and like machine learning in particular and how machine learning could help us do this workflow in ways that were really low cost and Eventually, um, I was able to, they brought Telstra Purple into the mix as well, and we were able to work with these three organisations to look at how do we solve this problem of not just telling stories in augmented mixed reality, but also creating the next generation of content creators in this medium. So we created a platform which uses machine learning and, you know, these really incredible workflows to do a lot of the heavy lifting of that production. So now we can teach kids as young as five how to create augmented reality experiences in a matter of seconds using this technology. Talk about ramping it up and scaling it. That's incredible. Yeah. I feel really privileged and grateful for the opportunities that I've had through this, you know, one conversation that changed my life. Amazing. It's a great tribute to your courage as well. (laughs) It really is. How would you summarize what InDigital is working on and what its kind of main offerings are now? Yeah. So we have three things that we do. Firstly, we work with teachers, educators, and elders in communities to teach them the workflow that we've created through this new technology to learn about cultural knowledge, language, and law from community and have the digital skills to produce content locally. So that's our schools program in digital schools. We also this year developed the program for adults because a few corporate partners came to us and said, we really love what you're doing with the schools. Can you do it with our staff? And then the third thing we invest heavily in is more research and development. So now instead of this just augmented reality just being done through headsets and phones, there's a movement to Web 3.0 where in a couple of years, everything will have a digital layer accessible to you through whatever device you choose to see those digital layers through. So that's a new internet that takes you from these two-dimensional screens into the three-dimensional viewing world. It's sort of like Google Glass kind of will come back in some fashion <laughs> if it's not Google, right, I imagine. On steroids. Yeah. 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 yeah, and there's a lot. the role that we play there is working with communities to develop cultural protocols in these spaces because as much as I see the opportunity in these technologies, I also see the risks and I think a really important conversation we should all be having, not just first peoples right now, is 
do we get to decide where we don't have Internet of Things devices connecting us into the spatial web? Are there going to be places around the world that are quiet from technology? I hope so. So do I. <laughs> but I'm not seeing the trajectory of that at the moment. So, I, no. yeah, I think we need to be bolder in having these, asking these questions. Yeah. Before we wrap up, you know, you have had some amazing recognition overseas. You mentioned that invite by the UN, um, but there's one role in particular I'm intrigued about. You know, I think you're on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Virtual and Augmented Reality. Sounds amazing. Can you tell us about that very briefly? It's so amazing. So I am on that because of the work that I did at the United Nations. So a, a dear brother that I work with, um, Chief Tashka Yawanawas, who he leads the Yawanawas people in the Amazon, was making a virtual reality film with Lynette Woolworth. And he said, oh, you should meet Lynette. She, you know, she does this kind of technology work that you do as well. Um, and we do work in different technologies, but we're both really interested in storytelling and, and new mediums. And so I, I ended up being able to meet Lynette. And I just love Lynette. She's, she's one of Australia's most incredible thinkers and storytellers. She had been working with the World Economic Forum and she put forward my nomination to the council and so I'm in my second term of being on the council and it is the most incredible place because there's 30 people involved in this council that are literally shaping the spatial web. So you know, there's deep fake technology experts, there's haptics experts, and I know like Sly, he, uh, Sly Lee, he runs a company called Emerge um, and he hates me calling it haptics, but it's basically the ability to use sound vibrations to have the sense of touch with holograms. Gosh. Um, so there's, wow. yeah, there's all this cutting edge technology that people are working on all around the world. And I'm in, I get to sit there and listen and learn from them about what they're creating and how they're creating it and well, their visions for these technologies. So it's pretty phenomenal and I feel very lucky to be part of that. I also feel lucky that I get to work with other first peoples um, on that council and, you know, have dialogue around what should the cultural protocols be and are they universal or should they be driven at a community level? Is it a mixture of both? So yeah, there's lots of really interesting people meet, to meet at those forums and have really deep discussions around you know, what's good, bad and ugly about what's being created. Yeah, and I can just imagine how stimulating that must be. You know, if there was one hot technology that, you know, you think our listeners should be getting their head around in terms of its likely impact in our day-to-day lives going forward, what would you be saying, you know, we should just at least know a bit more about and read up on? Definitely read up about Web 3.0, also called the spatial web, also called the metaverse. I think people haven't really landed on what this thing is, but we know it is involves taking content off two-dimensional screens and into three-dimensional experiences and the economies that will underpin these three-dimensional experiences as well. So looking into machine learning and blockchain as well. Mick, is there anywhere that you would go to read about that? Yeah, there's a really great book by Gabrielle Rene about the spatial web called The Spatial Web. (laughs) Handy. Yeah, that's a really great resource. Well, Mick, it's been so fascinating. A final question we often ask, I guess, is, you know, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Rock bottom is a great foundation to build from. 
I think, you know, having gone through the harrowing experience of trying to take my own life, I know that nothing's going to be worse than that. So in some ways it's supercharged me as a risk taker. <laughs> so I always have that point to reflect back to and say, it's not that bad. It's There's not that much at stake with the decisions I'm making because that's the ultimate risk, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's profound advice for sure. Now, if listeners are intrigued, and I'm sure they are because I know I am, and they want to learn more about InDigital, where should they go? You can go to indigitalschools.com to find us or indigital.net.au to find us. Or I'm pretty much on all the channels. So if you want to look for me, um, you can definitely find me on Twitter, but I hang out in other spaces as well. Brilliant. Well, we'll share those also on our show notes page, as well as those reading recommendations. I'm, I'm going to look forward to diving into the spatial web myself, I think. Thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And we're so excited to see, you know, just all the amazing things that Indigital is going to come up with in the future as well. Oh. And thank you for being such a, a pioneer and a, and a warrior, you know, really getting through what you've got through and is just phenomenal you're a great role model so thank you thank you so much i just want to give a shout out to my incredible team that i'm so lucky to work with every day because i I can't do this without them so thank you and thanks for having me and thanks for letting us share our story on your incredible podcast thanks mick Mick's stories are quite incredible, aren't they? They sure are. And you know, what a profound lesson for all of us. The moment when Mick felt most strongly about throwing in the towel and giving up her work on InDigital, and she nearly didn't show up to an event, was also arguably the moment when, with Microsoft being in the room and unexpectedly offering help, that completely changed the trajectory of her business and its growth. Yeah, I know. You know, it really is something to remember, isn't it? You know, and the number of stories you hear of entrepreneurs wanting to give in, but being persuaded to hang on in there, and then just around the corner, a major breakthrough occurs. Yeah, you really have to hand it to Mick, just how strong and resilient she's become over the years, and it's served her very well, particularly in that kind of context, hasn't it? It certainly has. And as she said, being both a female founder and an Indigenous founder certainly made raising capital very difficult, amongst other things. Yeah, so hard. But, you know, it's really great that she's supported by the CEO um, community where we're both activators. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's this first episode for October, done and dusted. We'll be back next week with another mini episode. In the meantime, stay safe, keep smiling and keep on taking one step forward at a time, just one foot in front of the next. It's so much easier. Ciao for now. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered.